I'm the doctor. So you're the famous Sam. You're listening to Pieces of Eight, the Doctor Who podcast that always exhibits model behaviour because we're well trained. We're continuing our exploration of those sections of the Doctor Who universe that feature the incarnation of the Time Lord as played by Paul McGann. I'm Rebecca Chapman. And I'm Kenny Smith. And you join us as we resume our quest to feature the Eighth Doctor's exploits, whether on screen, in books, novellas, full cast audios, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, magazines, and more. Indeed we do. Mm -hmm. Today we're continuing our voyages with the Eighth Doctor and Sam, and given that we've covered the first 18 novels with them together, and also featured them in a trio of short trips, Bounty, Dead Time, and The People's Temple, we might as well be completists and finish off the run. I agree. Today we're starting off with Model Train Set, the short trip that opened the BBC's first collection of short stories, published on the 2nd of March 1998, and was also given an audio release the same day. The audio release, which was read by Nicholas Courtney, All Hail the Brigadier, and Sophie Aldred, All Hail Ace, includes five stories taken from the book. That's Freedom, Model Train Set, Glass, Stop the Pigeon, and Old Flames. And features an exclusive story, Degrees of Truth, by David A. McEntee, which was found only on the cassette. So, without further ado, could we please hear what the cover blurb from the tape has to tell us about the release? Of course. I think it's important you tell us this because, you know, being a short trip, people may not have heard it and may need all the information that is contained on the official publication. What do you think? Would you agree with that? Of course. It's always very important to read the cover blurb when we know that we have to get the reading voice ready. So, two seconds. Model Train Set by Jonathan Blum. The Eighth Doctor comes up against some very old problems. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> oh that's good it's um at least we know it's not Daleks, Cybermen, Vord, Yeti, the Magma Beasts or anything like that it's just his train set and some issues it's lovely it's a wonderful short trip and I remember reading it at the time and thought it was a really good character piece really good intro for this doctor to show how he works with his model train set which has been built by perhaps the seventh doctor who's obviously well known for his Machiavellian plans and scheming and how he gets on and wanting to be hands-on with the universe. And here we get to see how the Eighth Doctor is slightly more hands-off and what happens when he's not involved. Fabulous, fabulous story. Indeed. I I just want to add that I absolutely love the word Machiavellian. It's such a good word. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you should change your name to Rebecca Machiavelli. So then everything you do could be like, well, look, there's the Machiavellian baby. There's a Machiavellian <laughs> hat. There's your Machiavellian no. dinner. No, 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 no. no. Oh, well. <laughs> we tried. Anyway, without further ado, let's hear from the man who commissioned the book and edited it. It's Steve Cole. Hi, Steve. Hi, I'm Steve Cole. I was range editor for BBC Books' Doctor Who list back in the late 90s. Model train set. It was the first story in the very first volume of Short Trips by Jonathan Blum. And it gave us a a good wee intro to our new Doctor again and how his life compares with his other selves. I thought it was a lovely bit of writing and was one of the uh, 
obvious choices for the audio version of uh, Short Trips as well, which actually I, I have a very rare BBC greetings card, which has model train set as a story bit on it. So it's like a card with a picture of the TARDIS on it. It comes with a CD and the CD just contains that one story. So it's like a send a story type thing. Um, there was a little edition of six, and I think that they stopped them after that. But I always think it's quite one of the more unusual uh, of the novel spin-offs. I always wonder if John actually got a copy. I think I only, <laughs> I only found a copy right at the very end. It was kind of what happened without me. Maybe uh, all these years later, he'll be able to uh, sue for, for Miss Royalties. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it was, it's a nice little character piece. It sits there and you know is very enjoyable, nice and straightforward. Um, and gives us, yeah, a little insight into uh, how the Doctor's mind works. Yeah, I enjoyed that one. Having Sophie as a reader was just wonderful. It's just really sort of captured the playfulness of it in places and the serious tone as well. Yes, that's right. Yeah, she did a lovely job on it. It was really, that was great fun working. Having Sophie and Nick Courtney in together doing the readings was was really good fun. I felt very lucky that day having uh, having the two of them there. Bye, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go on to our chat with Jonathan Blum, I believe you've negotiated something special for us, Kenny? I have indeed, because I have spoken with Michael Stevens from BBC Audio, and I asked if we could use a minute or so from the official BBC release of Model Train Set. And in fact, Michael was kind enough to say, you can't have a minute, you can have five. So we've been given official permission to use the first five minutes from the official release of Model Train Set, as read by the lovely Sophie Aldred. Model Train Set by Jonathan Bloom. The one-inch-high figure in the painted-on business suit stood on the edge of the railway platform, tapping its clockwork toes as it waited. The others in the queue behind it buzzed slightly to themselves. Finally, an impeccable O-gauge replica of a 1920s steam locomotive whirred and clattered its way up to the station, pulling three custom-made Pullman cars behind it. The miniature men stood patiently as the train came to rest, shuffled a bit, while a line of other figures filed out of the cars and finally trooped onto the train in unison before settling themselves neatly in their seats. Behind the station, the doctor's face leaned in close, soft blue eyes peering for a moment at the expressions on the tiny mechanical faces. Every sculpted hair on their heads was perfectly in place, not like his own chestnut curls at all. Then he straightened up, and gently turned one of the dozen handles on the control board, sending the train's wheels rattling into motion, and sighed. He felt glum. The model train set in front of him was a miracle of craftsmanship, his own craftsmanship, actually, built over the course of many years, a lifetime ago. More than a dozen trains of all varieties, electrics, steamers, even an old Mickey Mouse handcar, circled between five stations across miles of carefully crafted countryside. A miniature river bubbled from a source in the Papier-Mâché mountains and ran under half a dozen bridges of increasing size, ending in a glittering lake by the shoreline terminus. 
and the people had been his crowning glory, the product of months of tinkering in his workshop and further months of painstaking hand-detailing the painted faces on each one. The resulting world stretched from wall to wall in his wood-panelled study and was guaranteed to make the eyes of anyone who saw it widen in amazement. So what was missing now? He'd always loved trains for as long as he could remember. Even as a little boy, he'd dreamed of driving one. Sometimes he'd looked at the dream in a different way. At one point in his life, he would much rather have been the station master, quietly tending his plot and keeping his corner of the larger system in order, while at other times he would gladly have just been the man who rescued damsels from the bits of railway line to which men with curled moustaches kept tying them with alarming regularity. He suspected that one of his more recent incarnations would rather have been one of the steam engines, all bright paint and gaudy brass, puffing and chuffing about with great noise and clatter. But most recently, he had tended towards being the man in the nerve centre, routing and switching the trains on all their myriad ways, each one playing a part in the larger tapestry of schedules and goals. This was the doctor who had built the model train layout, who had machined each engine and laid each piece of track, who took a craftsman's pride in knowing every quirk and foible of the system he had engineered. He set each train on its way and happily juggled the dozens of minute details needed to keep them from interfering with each other. His pleasure came in the sight of a crisis overcome, or even better, a potential crisis avoided. He was the man who developed a childlike grin at the sight of the whole bustling network running smoothly. Finally, he'd come up with a plan in which everything worked. No matter what else you could say about him, he made the trains run on time. But now the new doctor looked at the model train set with a vaguely dissatisfied frown. It was all very well having a system which responded precisely to what you told it to do, but where was the surprise in that? If he prodded the rail network, he knew instinctively which way it would jump, but it would never jump on its own. Why didn't anything happen without him telling it to? The miniature landscape required his constant attention to keep functioning. If he stepped away from it, or let his mind wander, it either froze into immobility or collapsed into collisions and derailments. It was beginning to feel like such a bother having to take care of every last detail. Why couldn't he have the system just handle things on its own? And so that's what he did. With a sudden burst of energy, he dashed off to the TARDIS workshop, a long, low room smelling of damp and machine oil. He hunted through the rows of hulking metal machines till he found what he was looking for, an ancient computer terminal tucked in a corner behind the lathe and the IC press. He pulled up a chair and set about imagining. If you enjoyed that excerpt and want to hear the rest of the story, it's still available to buy. It was re-released as part of Doctor Who Tales from the TARDIS Volume 1, available in CD or digital download formats, with ordering details found at www.penguin.co.uk. So whilst you're getting your orders in, let's hear from the writer Jonathan Blum. Hello, this is Jonathan Blum, and I'm here to talk about Model Trainstead, which was actually the first piece of proper Doctor Who fiction I wrote. And as we talk now, you have literally just finished rereading it. So what were your impressions? My impressions, I think, are really... It's hard to express, but I think it, I think it's that I look back and saw the sense of 
the sense of glee that comes off that story. The sense that I'm that I'm being whimsical and fun and totally unafraid to just be a bit frivolous and emotive about it. I have missed that side of myself, and it's good to reconnect. <laughs> so, how did the whole commission come about? Okay, well, the first thing is that a model train set actually existed before there was a commission. I wrote this story as a piece of fan fiction originally. I think I might have posted it to all no, I didn't post it all Doctor Who Creative. I didn't really post my stuff there. But I think I had it for I was submitted it to a um, to a local um, local uh, fanzine down here in Australia. That was where it was first going to go in that case. Basically it was just again me and Kate thinking about the eighth doctor, who we absolutely fell in love with in the telemovie, and how he would react to things differently than the seventh doctor. So we sort of played on the idea of him uh, of him wanting to, wanting to uh, instead of running the system, he would just sort of sit back and try to let it run itself a little bit more. Uh, I wrote this up just as a, a little vignette to, to express what I was thinking about with this character and sent it off there and was thinking nothing more of it. And then uh, the BBC Books folks came, got in touch with us and asked us whether we had anything we wanted to submit as a short story uh, to the short trips collection that was being planned. At which point I sort of thought, well, we've got this. Uh, I think it was Kate who had actually been approached, but they knew who I was because they, they because uh, they they had agreed that we were going to do um, uh, that we were going to do vampire science by that point. So they knew who I was, and they were happy for me to submit this under my own name. And to my absolute surprise, it was accepted. And so this thing that was just going to be this little piece of fanfic that I had written basically for myself suddenly became my first solo credit, and I was I was over the moon. And it was the first story in the book as well. Yes. And I mean, there was, it, it was just a delight to realize this thing, this thing had, it was basically, um, had become so much more than I ever thought it could. And then when I heard there was going to be an audiobook version and Sophie Aldred, who I absolutely adore, was doing the reading, I was just flabbergasted. That was a real sort of, this is before uh, Fearmonger, so I mean, didn't even have any thought that, um, that I could ever, the idea that Sophie would ever be reading my words was just this absolute bombshell. And um, I was delighted even though she mispronounced my last name. <laughs> and I think a lot of people sort of got it from there as being mispronounced from there for many years. So, uh, Yes. But having mutual oh, friends, well. that's how I knew how to pronounce it. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I've ever told her that she got that wrong. But I probably should at some point. <laughs> well, let her off. I'm sure she'll be all right. I do love the fact that we've got little miniature doctors in the platforms and uh, everything just seems to fall apart. It's... It's quite incredible, just showing that no matter what he thinks, the Doctor is going to be needed. Yeah. Part of the thing, I think the reason why I had miniature Doctors in there as well was because that one line of uh, Peter Davis about how he always wanted to drive a steam engine when he was a boy. And I just suddenly thought, well, of course, if the Doctor were going to do this, he'd give himself that chance to do it. And he's not, and that Doctor is not running the show. He's just at most part of, part of what's going on in there. But I, but I, but I thought that it would just, it would, it would be the kind of thing that if he were just playing with something like this for himself, he would, of course, he would let himself fulfill his dreams. I, I, I didn't go far enough with it. It's also I know that he suspected that one of his previous selves would much rather have been one of the steam engines, <laughs> <laughs> reference to Colin Baker. But I didn't actually go any further than that. <laughs> yeah, charging his way through like a, the proverbial bull in the china shop or a yeah. huge train in the train's tracks. But yeah. I think it's a wonderful character piece and it. it's a wonderful introduction to compare this calmer, less scheming Doctor to his predecessor. Yeah, 
the idea that this doctor, this doctor, he will come up with plans, but he does them in the present tense. Like he is actually dives and he's immediately working on them. It's not something he has figured out ahead of time. He let he puts it in there, and more importantly, again, it's that image of the television being associated with light. He is uh, he sets sets things up and lets them sort of spiral from there, which we didn't really get to do as much within the later books as I guess we kind of hoped. But there was that sense that that. He would be delighted at the fact these things would happen out of his control and continue to happen out of his control. But to decide we don't actually get to see very much of Doctor in proper adventures because usually when things go out of his control, something very bad has happened. But this was a chance to just be fun. Yeah, I think that's the thing that is. It's just so light, and because obviously the way that the books would later go, there's a lot more darkness in there. But I think this we just get a chance to see him kicking back on his own, and we get to see what he does to have fun. Yeah. And I think, of course, I mean, the Doctor would obviously, if he was going to do something, he'd be, become this complete enthusiastic nerd about it. <laughs> and yeah. part of this is um, that I'm playing with with things that I never really got to do myself as a kid. I had a model train set, of course, O-Gage, it was the Lionel set, a lot of stuff that dated back to the 30s that I managed to inherit from uh, other relatives. It was, And a lot of the things that were described in there are trains that I wish I could have had, but we could never afford it. <laughs> so it's a little bit of wish fulfillment for me too. I mean, the mention of the uh, there's a mention of like the a replica of the Commodore Vanderbilt, um, of New York Central uh, locomotive. That was one of the great collector's pieces of like early Lionel trains, and I always wanted one of those, but there was no way I could ever have afforded it there. So at least I could let the doctor play with it. I mean, how big did you envisage it as being this train set? Are we talking as big as a like a I can imagine being as big as a sports field at some point? if he kept it growing but not at this point but he would have i was picturing basically something that would that would be like a if you picture the um uh, the gigantic TARDIS console room from the tv movie i picture this thing would have filled up it would have sort of wandered around through about a quarter of it sort of along the walls up and down a couple of levels there so this would be this, this large this large multi-layered complex thing that he had been building over there uh, not like a sports field, but but definitely definitely uh, a huge and elaborate little thing where he just let, let basically set the thing up and let it, and let it just chug along by itself. I, I, feel, I believe totally that's that. about into vampire science and it's still going. <laughs> and you mentioned that you thought there was a line cut just before we started chatting. Ah uh, yes, there was a line that I thought they said they were going to strike out from the book, uh, but that they didn't. It was um. Uh, I'll see. I'll, I'm just finding right here. When the doctor is 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 seeing what had happened, um, uh, and he's looking, thinking, "Oh my God, he should have known better." And there's just a line. But look at what happened with the humans' transit systems. Transit with a capital T. This is, of course, a reference to transit. <laughs> and I thought that because of the BBC's uh, "Don't ask, don't tell" attitude towards Virgin in those days, that that line was cut. I seem to recall them saying they were going to cut it, but I guess either they changed their mind or they missed it because it's still in there. <laughs> and it's just, and that that's one of those little things that I'm I'm thrilled by. There there have only been uh, two lines in my manuscripts that have been really annoyed that they got cut, and that was I think one of them that irked me, uh, and it wasn't cut. So I feel a little <laughs> bit better about that now. Hooray! <laughs> oh, John, that's been amazing. Thank you so much for a wee chat about it. Ah, uh, thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks to Steve, Jonathan and Michael Stevens for their time and permission to make this episode possible. Now, we've not done too badly out of uh, a short trip that's what, only what, 10, 
10 odd pages of a book and 18 minutes in audio. So that's rather cool. That is very cool. I think we've done very well. And I'm very grateful to all mentioned today. Mm, as am I. Well, that's not our only short trip because tomorrow we'll be back to bring you Femme Fatale by Paul Mars for more short trips. We'll be chatting with him and Steve Cole and bringing you a full reading of the story too. Do it's I like, get to talk to Steve Cole tomorrow, Kenny? <laughs> um, I don't know. We'll have to find out. That's that's tomorrow's treats. We'll have to be back here in 24 hours to see exactly what happens. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like an early Christmas present from us to you, the listeners. So until tomorrow, I've been Kenny Smith. And I was Rebecca Chapman. Bye. 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 <laughs>